This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. Each week, a top nonfiction author is interviewed by a journalist, public policymaker, legislator, or others familiar with their work. We post the podcast every Sunday, subscribe, and never miss an episode. This week, our guest is Jennifer Steinauer. She's author of the book, The Firsts, the inside story of women reshaping Congress. She's interviewed by first-term Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan, Democrat of Pennsylvania. So I'm really excited to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you today because um, I have a, a not a terribly good memory, to be honest. And so this last year has been kind of a blur for me, a year and a half. And so I'm really grateful that you took the time to write down so many of the stories that I frankly have lived in the last year and a half. So what inspired you to write this book? You know, the, um, my editor of this book called me right after the election and said, oh my gosh, you know, we have this record number of women in Congress and such an interesting mix of women in Congress. So many firsts for so many different um, districts and, and for Congress period. Don't you think that'd be a great book? And you've covered Congress over the years. Um, I'd love you to do it. And you have, you know, six months or something. Yeah. <laughs> it was a killer deadline. And I thought, great, that'll be great. I mean, this is going to be all new people. Um, and I had had the experience of covering when the Republicans took over and the Tea Party wave and what that was like to have a whole new breed in town. So I thought, wow, that they're kind of bookends. Mm, that's a really interesting contrast. And from you know your book, you tell a lot of stories, uh, many of them personal to me. Um, what ones stand out to you as being the sort of the most remarkable stories that you would, if you had coffee with somebody, that you would want to share with them about our class or this year? I think there's a couple things. I always loved um, sitting in the gallery and watching all of you interact to see who sits with whom and, and who hangs out. And, and I did find the group of national security women, um, as they're often referred to, uh, so close and so tight-knit and kind of watching you had this sort of bonding experience. And with the men as well, but watching that was really interesting to me. I think um, another just kind of legislative memory that really sticks out for all kinds of reasons was that vote on the background check bill, the Lucy McBath mm -hmm. um, bill. For a lot of reasons, just that she had run on that issue, having had such a painful, horrific experience of losing her child to gun violence, uh, which then drove her into the political arena. And so many personal stories did drive women, such as yourself, yeah. into politics, which was such a theme of that election. Um, a bill that obviously had not gotten any traction in Congress uh, in the last decade to see it passed, then to see the contrast of the moderates and the progressives and fighting over the amendments to that. Um, and that was ha unfolding right in front of us. And that's chronicled that moment in the book. And I, and I followed um, Congresswoman McBath from her hearing to the floor uh, as she was getting ready to, to, uh, to vote on that bill. And that will just always stick out to me as the intersection of the personal and the political and something that really demonstrated in so many ways what this Congress has been about. And that really was an important uh, bill, a couple decades that we hadn't voted on or considered any sort of legislation about guns and gun safety. And it was a really personal issue for, for Lucy in particular. And as I recall in the book, you told uh, a bit of a story about the motion to recommit um, that was uh, associated with that. And I think that's one of the things that from a memory standpoint, struck, uh, strikes me as uh, what this year and a half has been mm -hmm. about for me and my learning experience. There's a, a concept or an actual thing called a motion to recommit, which basically gets appended to every bill of any consequence that gets voted on in Congress. And it, it has as its history being something that's sort of the last bite at the apple from the party that's in the minority to be able to perfect the bill so that theoretically, if we just had this happen on this motion to recommit, then everything would be perfect in the, in the bill as a whole and we would be able to pass it bipartisanly. That's sort of the heritage of this concept. But the MTR has become instead a weapon of the party of the minority in a lot of ways. And it's become something that can be used, frankly, to run um, attack ads on the party in the majority and specific members of the party in the majority. And this was one of the things that was most um, striking to me as a, as a person who was a freshman, but not, a, not only a freshman, but a first-time legislator, that there are these kinds of... Um, uh, weapons or at this point in time that, that that seem to be almost like your appendix, not necessary any longer. Uh, and that was something that I was really struck by in Congress. Another thing I was struck by, and you wrote a little bit about it, was um, freshman orientation uh, as having been 
largely not with a lot of um, content. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I thought that that was interesting too. Um, and I was wondering for you, when I went to college, there was a, an essay that stands out in my mind, which was in one word, if you could describe yourself, what would that one word be? So if you could describe our freshman class, what would you think that that one word would be? And why would you use that word? Um, I would say remarkable um, because on the one hand, if you look at the fact that it's the most number of women and yet it's still so few. When I interviewed uh, Congresswoman Pat Schroeder about this, she said, well, I don't even know what we're celebrating here. We're not even a quarter. So it's, um, it's striking both um, in its absence of, of a larger number, and, 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 but that it exists, right? And then um, the diversity, as I mentioned earlier. And as we talk about the motion to recommit, which only on C-SPAN can we have such a lengthy conversation about this. And I think it's such an important, right. fascinating thing. And for me having stood in the speakers lobby when the Republicans in control and the Democrats would do one. And that's when the Republicans, a lot of the guys would go out and smoke cigars out on the balcony. You know, it just wasn't a thing anyone paid attention to. And watching how something like that that's symbolic or has become um, an anachronistic at this point um, to be revived as part of a political conversation in a sense. And watching, I think the, what was remarkable too, besides the fact that you had this, all these very interesting backgrounds, was that you let your experiences um, and the newness of it, you let that unfold pretty openly. I don't think people really tried to hide the fact. In fact, it was, and for many people, obviously, a badge of honor to have not been in politics, especially in Washington, and to let um, your newness to it and, and, your, and, frankly, your fresh opinions on how things should be done, uh, even when it didn't work out uh, in your favor. Um, and you talked about that motion to recommit again. I was talking to Angie Craig um, from... Um, Minneapolis suburbs in a coffee shop there and she said I kind of regretted that I, I, I realized only after the fact what that actually did so she's learning and she's open you know everyone's learning in front of the country and I think that's very different than 10 years ago I think it's really important transparency is really important it's particularly important to me and I think a lot of my freshman class members because we did just get here in a lot of ways we do have fresh and clean legislative records we are trying to be thoughtful and deliberate with our processes and making sure that we not only are, you know, hopefully representing people, but explaining why we're, why we believe that we're representing the people in whatever vote that we take. And so um, it is important also to be human. I think that that's one thing that I hope that you see in a, in a class with more women in it is that we're trying to be more our, our whole selves um, in terms of how we present to people. And I think that that's different than some of the women who may have run before us in terms of how they felt like that they had to present to, to people. They didn't necessarily feel like that they could be their, their whole selves. And I think my next question here is you, you did spend a lot of time kind of talking about people figuring out whether or not to run, how to run, whether they were recruited or not recruited. I, I as an example, um, was not recruited. I, uh, literally hit reply to an Emily's List email solicitation and attached my resume and said I'd like to run for Congress. Uh, and my, you know, literal reply went to info at emilyslist.com and I didn't think at all that anybody would ever answer me out in the ether and in the universe. And they did for whatever reason, I think, because I was earlier on in the process. And also, um, I got a lot of questions early on of why are you not running for school board? You know, why are you not, you know, starting with state or local? And, you know, my response to folks at that time was, hey, I'm 51, and I, I'm too old for that. And not only that, but I'm qualified. Uh, and I got kind of a response back, a tepid response back of, who are you to think that you're qualified, you know, without having any other qualifications in, in government? And I don't think we would have had those conversations and those kinds of responses with male candidates. Um, and I think that that's something that I'd like to understand. What do you think the differences are between men and women in running for office do you think that this is a class that wasn't necessarily recruited or a large part of us were recruited? You know, kind of what did you see in the landscape of all of us? It was a mix. It's funny when um, you're reflecting upon how you got into the race and, and talking about qualifications. I'm, I go back to that class of 87 freshmen and the 2011 Congress. And one of them I spent a lot of time was, was he had a pizzeria and that was his family business. And he went, and I don't think anybody said why. I think they said, how do you think you're going to beat this incumbent Democrat? Um, but I don't think that he was laughed out of town because of, uh, with regards to experience. And again, that's become a badge of honor in Washington to, to be down with the people, to be, you know, um, know your constituents, to go home a lot. So um, I, if you're talking to a woman and saying, oh, do you have enough experience? 
that's a, automatically a different standard, mm -hmm. right? If, if, you're, if your standard is to be a part of your community, a citizen lawmaker, if you will. It, it is very interesting, and I'm very curious to hear um, your thoughts on Elizabeth Warren uh, dropping out, which is t today on, um, on Thursday, um, because that's obviously a huge piece of the conversation. And there's just, there, there is no getting around um, these almost reflexive responses to women and frankly let's be honest often from other women Absolutely. i had a lot of women especially there's a chapter in the book about republican women and they talk about what you're talking about and people saying well who's going to watch your kids martha roby from alabama um who's retiring told me people would constantly say who's going to take care of your kids while you're in washington and you're on the road these these questions just just come up all the time and all i can say is my conclusion is that in order to combat that, you just need more women. Now, when women can get through a primary, they will get elected, but they have to get through the primary, and I think you see that's where a lot of that starts. Yeah, and I was struck by the parts of your book that reflected on the Republican women experience versus the Democratic women experience and that there were some differences that you you know, you assessed. I share with you kind of the joy when I look at our side of the aisle, the Democratic side of the aisle, and the diversity and the camaraderie and just sort of, the color, literally the color, because women tend to, you know, not wear suits. And so you just see this kind of uh, tapestry of America. And then when I look to the other side of the aisle, and largely I see more somber, you know, suits than mostly men. And I want that other side of the aisle to look like America. I want the other side to be more bright. And, you know, um, what, what comments did you make in the book that had to do with, you know, the Republican? Why can't we get more Republican women elected? I know that when I talk to many people in Washington and elsewhere, they don't believe me when I say this, and it's probably not universally um, enthusiastically so. I truly believe, um, in having covered Congress and talked to so many people in Congress and written this book, Republicans do want that too, especially women. They do want more women. They do want uh, a more diverse Congress. Now, it structurally speaking, um, the way that they have normally recruited people um, and supported people, which has to do with their overall political philosophy, um, has to do with you know, their meritocracy, that they want to be uh, gender neutral and race neutral and so forth and just always pick the best person. And I think Republican women in particular, especially those who are in the fundraising space and the recruitment space, are starting to really come around to the view, they did with me certainly in reporting the book, that that was just simply not going to work, that there had to be a gender focus um, mm -hmm. on recruiting women, often because, as we all know, women often, you didn't. Many women have to be asked to run. In fact, they have to be talked into running sometimes, even when they're highly qualified, more qualified than a, a male incumbent or challenger. So um, if that's the case with women, you are going to have to recruit women directly. And, you know, I talked to um, a woman who had run in a primary in North Carolina, and she was stunned to see how many women especially I think over 50, you didn't, just didn't believe that another woman should have, the mm -hmm. woman should have that job. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's some of that's very regional, but it's really, it's, it's, it's going to take concerted effort, I think. I think it's just not going to say we want more women, hey, come on and run. There have to be structural changes in place for that. I, I know that for me in my particular case, not only, of course, am I a woman, but I'm also a veteran and I'm also an engineer and I'm also an educator and all of those different kinds of things are not very well represented in our Congress and they're largely not really represented, and you just touched on it, because access to capital is the lifeblood of politics, sadly. Uh, and people who are veterans or educators or women uh, or, or educators are not those people who have vast networks of people who can support them and can you know, provide resources for their campaigns and that sort of thing. And so I think we are in a new time where there are increasingly more and more organizations who are recognizing that. And there are some on the Democratic side that support women, Emily's List amongst others. There are some on the Republican side that support women as well. Um, I think there are also some that are coming up that are supporting STEM professionals, people with engineering backgrounds or veterans uh, of one side or the other. And so I think we are making some reforms there that are allowing the um, e better access to candidates that are not traditional candidates who didn't come through politics or didn't come up as, as lawyers, as an example. And so I think that we are creating pathways for that. Of course, I think that it would be better if we had a, a system where we funded campaigns that wasn't about access to capital uh, so that it could have a more level playing field and that so pe more people could be encouraged to run on both sides of the aisle. Um, I thought it was interesting that you did spend some time on Sh Shirley Chisholm and Patsy Mink, and I thought that was really fascinating. Did you see any parallels between that conversation and today's members? 
In some ways, um, the history chapter was really interesting for me. I learned a lot, obviously. Um, what really struck me was um, the sexism and some of it, it quite just gross, um, was so much more prevalent in the 70s, and I really wanted to labor to understand that. And it was because so many of the early women in Congress took their dead husband seats. Mm. And they were really viewed by their male colleagues as adjuncts. Um, many of them worked in their husband's campaigns and worked in their district offices and so forth. It's like, oh, you know, Lucy's okay because that's Jerry's wife, you know. And so there wasn't really a, a huge number of women asserting themselves um, with their own agency the way there was, except with the first woman, Jeanette Rankin, who when she showed up in town, everyone wanted her lemon pie recipe, you know. So <laughs> it's always been uphill that I'm going to make her lemon pie, by the way, for Women's History Month. I'm really excited to do that. But um, the 70s, as women began to run on their own, that was when it, they were really pushing back and the men were really upset. Um, and that is also a, worth noting a period when women in both parties came together um, in the Women's Caucus to really try to have some legislative muscle behind the scenes because they really weren't on all the good committees. They certainly didn't hold gavels and things like that. And they put a lot of ideological arguments off the table and worked on things they could agree on. And that was a much more bipartisan time for women in, in Congress. And so this class, I think, was it, it's not it's very interesting that the Me Too movement was happening in the background of all of this because that's not the same as women coming through the women's movement and, and getting uh, elected in, in large numbers. It's not quite the same context, but there are some similarities in terms of what's going on nationally and what's happening in our culture and women reflecting that and women from different backgrounds who would never usually be considered for public office, certainly in, in a federal office, um, uh, coming up and, and, and deciding to run and getting elected. And I think those are where I saw some parallels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You said you mentioned the you know spouses of uh, dead Congress people, men. Um, Pennsylvania has only ever had seven elected women before this cycle, actually seven women total, and I think four of them were the spouses or the wives mm -hmm. of former members of Congress. So only three women in history in Pennsylvania had been elected in their own name until this twenty you know eighteen election, and now we have four. So we went from having no women in Pennsylvania at the time that I was elected to having four. And the fabulous I, four, I the believe. The fab four, exactly. <laughs> and I, I remember having a conversation, and you include this in the book, um, with a donor, uh, a woman, a lawyer who had been around for a while, um, and she was talking to me about support, being supportive of my campaign and my candidacy, but basically pleading and begging with me that if she was going to support me, that I would commit that I would not, you know, leave this Congress unless I felt that there was a stability in the Pennsylvania, you know, caucus for women, that Pennsylvania had this kind of heritage of having only one woman at a time, and that was pretty much our limit. Uh, and now we do have four, and so I, I, I think we are collectively committed to making sure that this isn't some sort of an aberration and that it's some sort of permanence as well. Um, you did write something in, your book, in the book that says, Once in Congress, no one wants to lose. And for centrists, every day is borrowed time. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and how it's played out in the last year, uh, particularly for the women members? Yes, I mean, we're seeing this, and so we're seeing some um, mirror of that, right, in the primary for the White House, the Democratic primary. Um, the, the House, it's remarkable to me how many people in the country who are very excited about having this many women in Congress or Democrats who are excited about Democrats taking back the House really struggle with the concept of how that occurred. Mm -hmm. And how it occurred was Democrats beating some Republicans. And how did that happen? It did not happen with the most liberal members, the most progressive members. Um, and yet the focus of the Democratic Party, uh, whether it's criticizing them or embracing them, has been to focus on the progressive element. Mm -hmm. And the notion that the party itself is um, organically moving to the left, and there is some research to back that up. But right now, if you if you look at how people are voting, and we see what's going on in the Democratic primary, in fact, if you want to attract centrists and and some Republicans, which is a coalition you need to to win, certainly the White House, and in some districts that where it's more Republicans or equal numbers, you're going to need that coalition to win a House seat too. You can't be embracing um, the most progressive positions, and pr probably naturally you wouldn't be because uh, you're running it in that district. 
And um, that tension of where uh, the, some of the most progressive faces at the, and the more prominent faces of that election, um, obviously we know who we're talking about, uh, particularly Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are kind of pre- presenting the Bernie part of the party, if you will. Bernie Sanders has done very well in this primary. Mm-hmm. He's one of the last people standing. There's no question there's a large segment of the party that is there with him. But that's not the growing section as per se right now, and it's certainly um, not the only part of the party. And that, and when you're in divided government to boot with any hope of getting anything done, uh, that sense that, that you can only do things, progressive legislation or you're not a real Democrat, I, I watch that vex these moderates who are saying, not only do I want to hold my seat, but that's the only way you're going to keep the House. And that tension never seemed to fully uh, become resolved from, from what I could see. And the women were, of course, the backbone of a lot of, a lot of those races. Yeah, and yes, in my particular district, you know, I have uh, held a seat that is, um, the vast majority of it is a, t- a county called Chester County. Mm-hmm. And Chester County has been red for more than 160 years. Um, and my community is 40% Democrats and 40% Republicans and 20% independents. And we are a very purple place. And, and I think I am one of those people that you're mentioning in terms of the, the race, um, that I, that I was able to, the house seat that I was able to flip really being kind of one of those pragmatic purple places. And something that I hope that women bring to the table, uh, and veterans as well is the uh, understanding that you're all part of the same team. And honestly, across the aisle, you're all part of the same team. We're all patriots. We're all part of this solution. And, you know, whether we're red or blue or purple, um, I think it's really important that we recognize that we're there to represent the 700,000 or so folks that are in our communities. And hopefully we were brought there because we represent those people. And so I might not be the same person as as Alexandria is. I might not be the same person as somebody who's, you know, from a, a red district that I'm not from, but that's okay because that's our job. You know, we're there to try and find the common ground and to try and come together. And one of the things that I try to explain to people in my mind is that it's not this sort of linear spectrum of red and blue. It's this circle. And in my opinion, the blue and the red, the hard blue and the hard red come together at the very top of that and that's when you see some interesting coalitions that happen at the very top sure. because they're in some ways more similar than they, than they know they are. And then down in the purple area, you also have some synergies going on, particularly in this Congress, where you've got a lot of veterans in the, in the purple parts because they flipped seats. You've got a lot of strong reds and strong blues. And things like authorized use of military force is mm-hmm. a great example where we might have the opportunity to have real conversations because we're representing our communities and because we come from different places. Uh, so it's, it's, I think it's really cool. Well, and also, too, um, how we define what's liberal and what's moderate has changed so much. And I, the most um, compelling example to me is the notion of the public option. Now it's an anthem with progressives not to support Medicare for all. Many, um, many people don't. They, pr- they prefer public option. The public option has now become the squish position for Democrats. But let's not forget, 10 years ago, that was considered very far mm-hmm. left. People lost their seats over mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. we don't think of the public option now as, 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 a, as a left-wing mm-hmm. uh, policy concept mm-hmm. at all. But that wasn't 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. That was 10 years ago. So, how, so I think just sometimes how we define people, too, could be um, we could complicate that. Absolutely. So switching topics to something that's a little bit more fun, um, I, I laughed that you included the part about the member, the member orientation because I found it to be kind of a frustrating experience. Uh, during freshman orientation, we literally had different buses for Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. We spent a lot of time focused on things that were very um, HR-ish, which, of course, you'd expect in an orientation, but very little on things like what is an MTR you know, and why should we care about it or very little about how do you get something through appropriations. And that's, um, you know, largely because I think we had a huge class of people who needed to have that background where I would have thought that would have been helpful. But, you know, you've been here for a while, and so you probably have seen a couple things that I haven't seen. What do you think the weirdest thing is about Congress? You know, when you go out of the Beltway to talk to people about us, I talk about the MTR. I think that's the weirdest thing. Is there something that that you can think of? In some ways, I think... What continues to strike me, and, you know, a lot of people who cover Congress have been in Washington a long time. I had a little bit of an unusual background because I had been spent most of my career in New York City, and then I was Los Angeles bureau chief, and I came here. I wasn't a Washington reporter. So in some ways, I was a freshman, right? I, these things were very new to me. I hadn't spent any time on Capitol Hill. And what struck me then, and which I enjoyed watching members um, 
interact with is really more the bizarre physical nature of the Capitol and how and how you go about things. Just the amount of walking. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with women about their need to buy new shoes <laughs> <laughs> and the way that the footwear issue. You know, it's huge, right? Um, the the amount of walking that goes on. That the funny little antiquated things, the mail slots, and you know, there's a rotary phone as you've probably noticed in one of the member elevators. Um, the fact that members are still called to votes with these these buzzes and these bells, and you have to know that. And you know, there was a time way back when when senators before that process would be eating oysters and drinking champagne, and their aides would have to come by and you know tell them, <laughs> "Hey, senator, it's time to vote." You know, so it, the, some of those things are gone. We don't have oysters in the um, in the rotunda as we not used that to. I'm aware uh, no, of, no. Not anymore. <laughs> But um, but in some ways, it's it, it's a very formal place still. I mean, people, you must know that right before you came to Congress, there was an actual live debate about whether women could expose their shoulders on the on the House floor, and this extended to the Speaker's lobby off of the House floor. So there's something sort of funny, antiquated, formal, um, perhaps needlessly so, but then sometimes charmingly so. I think people, until they get into that workspace kind of can't even imagine. I'd be curious if that was your experience. No, I mean, I, I share when I'm back home, I, I sometimes teach um, AP government classes or um, kind of classes to college and high school and, and grade school kids about like what the day in the life of a congressperson is. You know, what do I do all day? And one of the slides that I show them is, you know, my, my not my Fitbit because I don't have one, but my phone because I'm dragging right. it with me everywhere. And on most days I'm walking between six and eight miles a day. Um, and that's just a typical day. And on most days, I'm only in my office maybe 10 or 15 minutes a day um, because largely what I'm doing is all over the Congress. And one of the things that I found um, enlightening is, you know, and ironically, we're here on C-SPAN to talk about it, which is I never understood why nobody ever seemed to be at work in Congress, right. you know, because I'd be watching the television and I'd say, where is everybody? The seats are empty. And what I discovered is they're all on three or four different committees and six or seven subcommittees, and they're all happening at the very same time. And so when I'm, as an outsider, looking in and looking at those empty seats, what I'm not recognizing is that that member is walking around the eight miles of their day right. you know, to sit in their chair for their five minutes of conversation uh, to represent their community. And that largely what they're doing is then bringing back um, you know, information to their teams, to their staffs, to be able to work on legislative items or agendas. And that was a real eye-opener for me because I, I really did genuinely think, where is everybody and why are they not at work? Um, yeah, I tried to convey in the book, you know, people have a lot of these preconceptions about members. And, you know, maybe some of them are true. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe members of Congress have a little bit b- bigger egos than your average person because I think they can run. Or maybe they have these different kinds of quirks, but they're not lazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> they're not sure. lazy. I mean, these are hard working people when when they go home for recess that's not a recess they're running from you know one 4-H club meeting to meet with a mayor to meet with the constituents i had one member i think it was Sharice Davids who told me that um sometimes she has people come to her house on sunday if she can't get to them while she's at home oh, over the nice. weekend so that's a lot of work and yeah. i think you're right that is something people really just don't get about congress one of my classmates and my new classmates Jared Golden up in in Maine he, not exaggerating, brings a six-pack and knocks on somebody's door. Up, he, he just sits down and has a beer with them, and that's kind of what he does sometimes on the weekend. But you're right. I also, you know, am home in our community, and I hear on NPR, you know, Congress is in recess. And I hate that expression right. because you know that everybody's back home in their communities, you know, working really hard to be present at home when they're not here in Washington, D.C., um, what do you think that is speaking of all of this kind of visual, you know, cues of whether you're there or not there? What is the biggest difference between what you see in the media and what is actually happening here on the ground? Um, two things strike me, and they're kind of contradictory. And one I think is really important for people to understand is that. There is no question that there are ideological divides in Congress, and people come down to the floor, and some of it is performative, but some of it is extremely hard felt. those debates. Um, some of them are very personal in certain circumstances, and I think women have brought that to the table um, in the past couple decades, bringing, making policy very personal, talking about their constituents, their own experiences, and people's uh, the way people feel about, about legislation um, is hard felt and true and meaningful. But, and there is some true acrimony, there's no question. But I think 
what people don't understand is how much people kind of basically get along. Mm -hmm. You know, you get in the member elevator, you go into the escalator, or you watch people, um, Republicans and Democrats, they mingle, they talk, even people who are very ideologically um, opposed. I would stand outside the speaker's lobby again off the House floor and t watch people and who talks to whom. And you, you, it's amazing to see Democrats and Republicans who are, have massive policy difference who are just yucking it up or from the same state talking about something they're working on together or talking about a restaurant that they both know because you can hear these conversations sometimes. So it's some of that acrimony, again, is, is performative and some of it is genuine, but it doesn't extend to the personal relationships. And in fact, one of the conclusions I make in the book is if you look at the entire nature of the political discourse in our country, Congress might be one of the few places where people of ideological differences actually do mix every day and get to speak their mind to each other um, and at each other pretty regularly. Yeah, actually, that was one part of the book that I, I have a note on because um, in my, I'm seeking that. I'm a freshman, so I'm seeking friendships that are across the aisle, and I'm seeking friendships that are ideologically not my own. Um, and that doesn't even mean that it has to be across the aisle. As to your point, it can be to my left or my far, you know, my far right. Um, and what I've been struck by, and I'd love to have some hope on it from you, is I'd like it if our debates were of more substance, you know, on the floor. So I agree with you. I see that behind the scenes. I see that in closed doors. I see that, frankly, in classified briefings where people are mm. unfettered and they have the opportunity just to listen to the information and to ask questions that aren't necessarily going to be their five-minute, you know, YouTube opportunities. And so I would really love to see um, more substantive debate where people actually have to sit and listen as opposed to kind of spending their time with their five minutes of time with three minutes of talking about what happened last administration or 10 years right, ago right. or 30 years ago. And I, I hope that maybe you're seeing something different than I am on, on my committees. But I was really struck by that, that conversation in, your, in the book that I need to, I, I, I had more hope because, because of what you wrote in the book that I need to look harder for that, you know, look harder for the, the it does happen. I think the rules committee, boy, that's a fun thing to watch. That can be very animated, but they're down in the weeds on that, too. I mean, that is televised as well, but obviously most people are not tuning into that the way they are, too, in impeachment hearings. So it definitely, I think, does happen. But I, I didn't, I guess, get to my second point there, which I said was a bit contradictory, which is it it's kind of reminds me um, when I covered uh, Hurricane Katrina and I was, I would go from one, all the internet was knocked out in the mm -hmm. phones, and I would go from one town, and I would go to the next town, t 20 miles away, and they had no idea what was going on 20 miles down the road, because there was no, they were looking to me, you know, to, to what's happening down in Bogalusa, you know. Sometimes with Republicans and Democrats, I see that, reporters talk to everybody. Yeah. So then you might go to a Republican and say, hey, well, the Democrats said they're going to do such and such with this legislation, and they have no clue what you're talking about. You're a reporter. You're, you shouldn't know more than the other, the members do about what people on their own committee are doing. But that kind of goes back to your point about the buses and orientation. There's so little, um, it seems to me, mixing of the parties to actually know what each side is actually thinking and doing. Um, part of it for reconnaissance probably, but also just to have those kind of conversations. So part of it, I think, may be structural um, and that you'd have to address uh, as, as a legislature more than anything else. There is a, a new um, kind of temporary um, group that's called the Modern Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. And some of the ideas that they're putting forward are about those kinds of issues, which is, I think, it, as an example, it would be nice if those committee hearings didn't uh, happen all at the same time. You know, so I wouldn't be uh, committed to seven subcommittee meetings within three hours of one another. And instead, along the lines of high school, where you know I have three girls, I think you mentioned you have kids too. My kids are grown, but when they were in high school, they had this block schedule mm -hmm. situation where you couldn't combine this class with that class because they had to happen at different times. And so I'd, I'd like to see that kind of modernization where we are obliged to be in our committee and to be able to hear the conversation that's going back and forth. Because when I'm able to stay in my committee hearing long enough to hear everybody's conversation, I benefit from their knowledge. I benefit from what's important to them. Uh, and I'm able to bring it back to my hive, you know. So I'm mm -hmm. looking for that. I'm also looking for 
can we not sit left and right? You know, can we literally, you know, sit uh, in a popcorn way where we're sitting next to people? I'm lucky because I'm a freshman, and so I'm probably the most junior in some cases per, uh, person on some of my committees, and that necessarily means I'm sitting next to the most junior Republican as well. So I'm lucky that I actually get to sit side by f- side with Republicans in some of the committees. But it'd be cool if we had the opportunity to stay where we are for longer periods of time and to have to, you know, mix it up a little bit. I think that would be helpful, too. Um, Let's see. My next question is, uh, you talk a lot in your book about descriptive representation, um, which is the first time that I think I've seen that set of words put together. I'm an engineer, so forgive me if it's been around and I just don't know it. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yes, it's actually a political science term, and I learned it, too, in reporting the book, so definitely you should not feel um, embarrassed not to know that I certainly didn't know it. Um, descriptive representation means um, that you're a person who represents literally a sp- specific group. It, it tends to be um, for uh, racial and ethnic groups, but as veterans, you're, um, you are, if you were in a committee representing a lot of veterans and you're a veteran, you're representing uh, that professional group or uh, that particular group of, of people. But we do tend to think of it more um, in, in racial terms, and it's been usually used, I think, originally mostly to describe um, Latino lawmakers. But it's kind of interesting because I think that we think of this as being something sort of in, important um, in and of itself and that it's, that it's nice, and that's probably true, but you, I think you're starting to see, I would be very curious again to hear your opinion of this because you have an inside view that I don't in terms of whether it actually makes a difference. Um, I don't know, in the social interactions, I'd be very curious. I got some sense of that, but I think you do see it um, impacting legislation. I certainly think it's been very important. For example, Native American women, um, really it's extremely meaningful for them to see Native American women uh, in office. And they've made that extremely clear. And then you also see those women working on a lot of really intense tribal issues that not only get, get more um, perhaps fuel with them, but when they go to talk about those issues, they can have those conversations. People from their own community, they know about these tribal laws. They know about some of these specific things that other people on the committee may not know about because They've, that's literally their whole life. So it, it, it has substantive impact, I think. I'm curious to what you think. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, we do have a class uh, on the Democratic side that has a lot more veterans than and members who have served either in the CIA or other places than the past. Uh, many of us serve on armed services or foreign mm-hmm. affairs or homeland security or veterans affairs. And I think we have unique experiences, personal experiences that we're able to bring forward Uh, For me, as an example, I'm a veteran. Uh, I'm a kind of pre-9-11 veteran. So I'm one of the, I think, the only member of this class that served uh, before Mm 9-11. And I'm also, of course, a woman. And so one of the things that I was able to do early on is found the Service Women and Women's Veterans Caucus. Um, And it it would seem like we would already have a group of people who are thinking about women of service and women veterans as a caucus, but there isn't one. There hasn't been one. Um, and so this now has 50 or so bipartisan men and women, uh, people who've served and people who haven't served, who are now kind of coalescing around this, this issue of, of women who serve. And, and, relative, and why this is relevant is, you know, we're about 20% of the veteran population, you know, women are, and service member population. And increasingly more and more, we'll be probably 30 or more percent by the decade, uh, and we are 51% of the total population of, of the country. And so we certainly ought to be thinking about the women who serve and their entire trajectory, the arc of how are they recruited, because they're probably recruited differently than men are. How are they when they're active duty, you know, and their issues of family, as an example. I separated partly because I didn't have access to child care, and, I, and I, didn't, I couldn't figure out my way out of that problem. You know, once they uh, separate, when they're reservists or when they're, um, veterans themselves, what kind of health care issues do they have, as just an example. Um, and I think not only does this help the woman of service and their family, but it also helps us in terms of our readiness and our preparation uh, to make sure that we are ready to fight. Um, and if we have, str- and we do we struggle with um, making sure we have enough people in billets and, and we're not looking to the women in our communities, uh, then we then that's shame on us. And I think that having that perspective is really interesting and sad almost in a way that 
it took till 20, you know, 20 to have somebody say, wait a minute, we need a service women and women's veterans caucus. Similarly, we started, I, this office started uh, a STEM, a women in STEM mm-hmm. caucus, um, science, technology, engineering, and maths. And, and specifically also, I wanted to add STEAM, which is when you add the arts to, you know, mm-hmm. the, the STEM professions. And again, this was one of those things that felt like kind of a no-duh, you know, of course we should be talking about women in underserved and underrepresented communities being in STEM professions, but it hadn't happened before this time. And so similar to your stories with uh, the diversity of our class in terms of more Native Americans and Native American women, those are just issues that everybody's thinking about, but if you need somebody in the body to be able to say it's not being represented you know, quite well enough in our communities. Uh, and that's a real challenge to figure out how do we bring more diversity, not just of gender, but of all kinds of experience to Washington to well, be able to legislate on it. The professional um, issues are very interesting. And I think about the, the veterans um, group, if you will, these freshmen. Obviously, you know that uh, their decision uh, together and to pen the op-ed in the Washington Post advocating for impeachment was in, um, incredible, incredibly pivotal. Uh, for their colleagues who were not veterans, who were not former service members, I talked to many of them, and they said, okay, well, when I heard those women and men talk about this through the prism of their national security experience, that was impactful to me. So when you're bringing um, lived experiences, whether it's being part of a, a, a racial or ethnic group um, or, uh, or, or a veteran or any other kind of, of subset of our culture, it definitely uh, brings credibility, if you will, to those issues inside uh, the chamber. Absolutely. Is there anything that you see that's kind of hopeful um, to help heal the divides? The you know, you, you I, can, I guess where I and I I've shared this uh, many times is that I consider myself to be sort of an Eeyore, you know, kind of a glasses half empty kind of a person. And so I'm constantly trying to look for the tiggers in the world to tell me that the glass is half full. And I'm just trying to look when I think about the diversity of this Congress, particularly about the women. It's largely Democrats that, that where that happened. And sadly, we lost a lot of Republican women and are losing more this time around as well. And so back to the point that you said, I can't remember who told you, why are we celebrating? Well, you know, Pat Schroeder. Yeah, right? Pat Schroeder. Because have we, have we really made any progress? Do you see you know, hope uh, in what we're seeing in this, in this Congress that's different than some other time? Well, you should probably know reporters are the terrible place to look for tiggers. <laughs> but um, we're just uh, trained against that almost. Um, well, it's prob- it may not be considerably good news for your party, but I do know in terms of if you're talking about gender balance, um, Republican women, there is a huge effort to recruit more women this cycle. Okay. And we'll see what happens with the, with the primaries. That's where women generally, particularly Republican women, really run into troubles with, with primaries. But I think that that thinking cap is on with them with that group and you may see more women um in that party and you may see more women period in the next congress um i think that the, the struggle is still really and again this is fresh of mind because of elizabeth warren the struggle still remains at the top in some ways right um that the country kind of has to see someone elected in those top-tier positions mm-hmm. um, to in, in sort of battle test that, you wouldn't think so. I mean, if you look at Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State and all the things that she did and as a U.S. US senator, you wouldn't necessarily think that people have to wonder. Um, and I don't, I'm not advocating specifically on behalf of Hillary Clinton, and she had her own, obviously, enormous set of issues going into that race. But it's just, it's harder to, I think, frame it for, for down ballot when, when people don't see that. It just would be enormously helpful. Um, but having said that, within, within Congress, I think that uh, it's funny. At, at some point, one of the more senior women said to me, you know, one of the, the men are starting to grumble. We're getting sick of hearing all about these women. You know, I mean, they were feeling that it was, it was complicated because they were made to understand this was something for them to celebrate. But at the same time, they were having to struggle with really seeing some of their power removed and their own numbers reduced. And that's probably going to take a generation of men, I have to say, to sort of embrace these changes um, and to encourage more women to run, I I would imagine, um, where things may change a bit. Well, I'm speaking about um, Tiggers. I can report that some of my freshman colleagues, male colleagues, and I won't name them by name, really are those men that you're mm-hmm. looking for. They are evolved and thoughtful and working hard to change the face permanently of, of all 
uh, of not just Congress, but business and, you know, all those other places. And one of my colleagues in particular, we, uh, we joke because whenever we sit in hearings, um, we look across at the folks we are, you know, who are testifying and largely when you look across the aisle, it's a largely men, largely white men. Uh, and so I had started in my early days of my, my term asking the question, you know, gentlemen, look to your left, you know, look to your right, you know, look behind you. What, what's wrong with this picture and how can we make it so that the next time that I sit in front of, you know, you all, it looks a little different. Um, and uh, some of my colleagues, male colleagues, have started to take up the, that question on behalf of me. So they, you know, we'll text each other and, and I'll say, it's your turn, you know, to ask that question because I think it helps when it doesn't come from, you know, a woman all the time. So we're working, I think, collectively and, and it's actually part of that, um, the veteran group uh, that, that we're working on having those conversations more collaboratively. Well, that reflects the culture at large, right? I, mean, I think this is part of the conversation that people call it. Like, mm-hmm. Use the term allies, right? Mm-hmm. And you look at this, again, a younger generation of men are just... A lot of them are leading in different ways and, and interacting different ways in the workplace. I think about you, you, you triggered a thought in my brain about, about paternity leaves. Mm-hmm. And um, I see so many men, I'm Generation X, and I see so many millennial men just taking for granted that um, not only can they do that, but that they should do that. And I remember there was a male colleague at one point who said, I can't, you know, I'm too busy at work. And, and the female turned to him and said, if you don't take your paternity leave, then you're signaling that that's a weakness to take paternity leave. Mm. And you're not, you're not leading by example. And that really, um, he really took that on and he took his leave. And I think that that, again, when you see, and you mentioned the corporate, uh, the workplace, you see the broader culture, that will be reflected probably, uh, I would think, in the halls of Congress as well. I talk about that a lot where I say, um, one of my, my um, spirit animals, one of my um, heroes is Sally Ride, and she's famous for having said, you can't be what you can't see. And so we try really hard in our job here at my office to, to try and make sure that you can see all the different things that you can be, not just as a woman, but as a, you know, as a veteran or as an engineer or as an educator all of those kinds of things. And also, I will tell you a a quick story as well with my colleagues. When I was on that bus in freshman orientation, this tells you a little bit about um, our diverse class. I was sitting with another woman, uh, another veteran, and ahead of us were two men, uh, also freshmen, and they were sharing stories about nap time of their infants and bottles and and nursing. And the, the two of us were just amazed at the conversation that was so cool that we... We, the women, were not having that conversation. It was the newly elected men who were having the conversation about their families, which is really cool. You know, that means that we're making some progress about, you know, worried about getting home for their, from their districts or being here and not, you know, being home for their kids. And, and it's really, really nice. And you need the workplace to validate that, yeah, too, right? Yeah. As long as, you know, bosses and leaders see that as a positive, that's obviously a huge piece of it. And I will say one of the things that speaking to the diversity of the class and also the uniqueness of the experiences that we bring. You spoke about um, Native American representation. Uh, another example that I can bring out is here in Congress this session, um, I put forward some legislation on rare earth elements um, because I'm really interested in um, the supply chain of those elements mm-hmm. and what we need to make our cell phones and satellites work and national security depends on whether we know where these elements are coming from and we know um, who has them and who doesn't have them. Mm-hmm. And in putting forward that legislation, we were able to find some money uh, by selling off some tungsten, which is one of those rare earth elements. And that was able to be combined uh, to help begin to pay for paid uh, family leave. Um, And to begin to pay for paid family leave in a defense department environment, you were able to bring the progressive caucus along, you know, the folks who are a little bit more left of me, because they very much, and we all ought to be interested in paid parental leave or paid family leave, so they were able to be brought on as a coalition and supporters uh, of, of, of the DOD legislation. And then when that moved forward into the Senate, the Senate, understandably in some ways, wasn't as interested in paid parental or family leave coming out of the DOD you know, a, a budget, even though it was for federal employees. Uh, but what was interesting is that it ended up becoming uh, a bit of a, a honey uh, for uh, Ivanka Trump and for the administration mm-hmm. because they have run on and, and support um, paid uh, family leave or paid parental leave. And so in the end, this very strange coalition of 
you know, folks on the Armed Services Committee, rare earth element interests, um, paid parental and family leave from the progressives and, and the administration ended up with, for the first time ever, 2.1 million federal employees having access to paid uh, 12 weeks of paid parental leave. And that's decades and decades in the making on the, on the backs of a lot of people, including uh, Congresswoman Maloney and my chairman, Mr. Smith. Um, but it just is the kind of a signal of what can happen when you've got sort of weirdness in the air, like... Like but rare earth elements. That's what makes Congress great, right? Mm-hmm. As a member and a reporter covering it. It's like something that's so bizarre and wonky, but also so fascinating yeah. about, about how things come together yeah. like that. That's, that's something people just don't kind of see the background of all the time. Absolutely, absolutely. I have like one more question, and then I'm going to open it up for you for the questions that um, I'm sure I didn't ask. Um, why? Who should read this book and why? So... Anybody who's interested in what's happening with the Democratic Party and who's watching uh, the primary and who's interested in the outcome of the election period, um, I think could learn things because I do think that your class and the 116th Congress was a bit of a dress rehearsal for all of this in terms of uh, how the parties are interacting in intra-party, what's happened to the Republican Party, frankly, what's happening in the Democratic Party, um, and how we're trying to come together as a country and what some of those internal conflicts are. I think it's um, an interesting book for young women, so they can see the different paths that different women from a variety of backgrounds have to possibly being in public office. I brought up Sharice Davids earlier, who's Native American, and I said, do you feel the onus? Do you feel, is it sometimes overwhelming to feel like you are representing uh, this group of people? And she said, yes, in a way, if I think about it. But she said, you know, I have just as many people who come into my office who say, hey, I go to community college, Mm -hmm. and you went to community Mm -hmm. college. So they're inspired in that way. So there's so many paths for so many people. And I think some of those paths, whether you're a veteran, um, whether you're Donna Shalala and you've had an entire career uh, and you're at an age where some people are retiring, you decide to go be a freshman in Congress, um, you're young, you're old, you come, you're, you're poor, you're rich, you're middle class, uh, you're, you're black, you're white, whatever background you're coming from, there's a path for you. And I think the these paths are, are explained there. So I hope, um, and anybody who's sort of interested in history, because there is a lot uh, in, in the chapter of how women kind of began uh, be, being part of Congress that I think is just sort of fascinating. It was for me to learn. No, I enjoyed very much the experience of, in some ways, rereading what happened you know, to me in the last year and a half and to my classmates. And I would encourage other people to, to read as well. I'm understanding that we are out of time, so you don't get to have the opportunity for your own question. But I I really appreciate being able to have the tables turned and to be able to ask questions of you. And if you noticed, you three times you tried to get me to answer a question. (laughs) It's a habit. (laughs) So habits die hard. 25 years. (laughs) But it's nice to be with you. Thank you, Congresswoman. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards. Please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.